There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I'm Wanda Wallace, and today we're going to talk about engagement. So, you know, engagement surveys are really commonplace, and the results, though, seem to be year after year after year discouraging. And I know a lot of my clients keep looking at those numbers and just not moving, just not moving, just not moving, or moving by small amounts. So despite that, for most companies and all that effort, there's just not a lot of progress to show. What we want to talk about today is there's another way, and it's not just about chasing survey results. So we're going to talk about what it takes to create true engagement, and it's about how you think about your role as the leader, particularly if you're an expert. So with me today is Mark Crowley. Now, Mark is recognized as a path cutter in workplace engagement and culture. Forbes magazine calls his ideas visionary and the blueprint for the future of the workplace leader. Mark has over 20 years in financial services um, in large American company in variety of responsibilities, but recently as a senior vice president and national sales manager for over 2000 stockbrokers, where he was named leader of the year. And he discovered along the way that his chosen management style was not particularly common. So after some thought, Mark decided to leave financial services and devote himself fully to answering one question. What happens inside of people that makes them fully committed to doing extraordinary work? That research has led to the publication of Lead from the Heart, which has been ranked and, um, on Amazon as the top 100 bestsellers in workplace culture consistently. So Mark's a regular contributor on Fast Company, on the Huffington Post, on Reuters, on USA Today, Great Place to Work Institute. He's interviewed CEOs and senior executives at numerous high-performing companies like Google and SaaS and Gallup. And his two recent LinkedIn articles, Employee Engagement and Managing Millennials, have been read over a million times. So, Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you so very much, Wanda. I'm thrilled. I'm delighted to have you with me. So let's talk a little bit about your career because I'm just intrigued. So here you are, you're financial services, you're leading over 2,000 stockbrokers, you're named leader of the year, and you're getting fabulous results in every metric we want to look at, and you discover that your management style is atypical. So what were you doing that was so unique? Well, um, so it's a wonderful question and a big question, and, and let me just kind of think through the best way to take you through this. I, I would say that uh, in your introduction, you mentioned that I had a 20-year you know, financial services career, and I started off out of college as a management trainee, so rock bottom, having to prove myself, work my way through, and um, what ended up happening was that I got this rapid series of promotions, and... Uh, my career just kept progressing, and I was routinely getting phenomenal results out of people, regardless of what the job was or responsibilities that they had or, or what our goals were. And so I just thought, whatever I'm doing, everybody else is probably doing, it really doesn't matter. I'm happy with the outcome. And I was in my 40s when somebody who'd been working for me for a very long time said, you realize you manage people very differently, right? You, like, you don't approach it at all like most people. And I think at that point I began wanting to have a bit of an inkling into this, but really didn't know what she meant and asked her to flesh this out for me. And so the, the direct answer from what I was doing was responding to a pretty corrupt upbringing. So I had been raised, my mother died when I was very young. My father was uh, really psychologically abusive and, and went out of his way to destroy my self-esteem, my sense of well-being, really intended to sort of from an evil point of view almost wanting to cripple me uh, emotionally. And then he uh, did one final blow by kicking me out of the house right after I graduated from high school without any financial support, emotional support. And I was really on my own. And so in trying to find my way and still graduate from college and, and really not, uh, you know, end up on the curb, 
I, I had to work really hard and I really suffered in that process. And so I, I came to an understanding, Wanda, that when I was graduating from college that I, I had it much harder than most people did in terms of just lacking a certain degree of support. And the pivot that I made in my career, which this woman who said to me, you manage very differently, led me to discovering uh, as a 42, 43-year-old manager, was that I had made a pivot unconsciously to care about people in the way that I always wanted to be cared about. And it was interesting because I had grown up in the retail bank side, and the president of retail banking came to me and said, we know you don't have any bank background at all in financial services in, this, in the securities business, but we think you'd be a good manager of that business. And so when I started managing the, the senior managers who were directly supervising all these brokers all over the country, the first thing they told me was, you know, the way you've been managing all these bank people is never going to work with the brokers. They, they don't want to be influenced. It's, it's just broadly, they just said it's never going to work. So I said, well, what do you think does work? And they said, well, leaving them alone, just letting them produce, that's really what they want. So I got on planes and went all over the country, met with the top 25 brokers, and I said, what do you want? And what are you looking for? What could I give you? And everything that they wanted was, we want attention. We want growth. We want to know that we're making a difference. We want to know that our contributions here matter to you and matter to the company. And so I confirmed that everything that I've been doing through my entire career was validated even in people that were fully commissioned stockbrokers. And it all boiled down to giving people feelings of safety, which, of course, I never felt particularly in those years of graduating, going through college. Connection to me, growth, knowing that somebody was advocating for them, helping them to develop and become more constantly, appreciating, making sure that people knew that I was grateful for what they did, that what they did really mattered. And at the end of the day, I guess the, the, the big takeaway is that I was managing the emotional side of work and that people never outgrow grow needing the kind of support that I was giving them. <laughs> Love that. They never outgrow needing support. Isn't that a true statement about? So I got to go. This is fascinating. So here you are just doing caring for people the way you wished you had been cared for, if I can kind of quote you from that one. And you go from running a retail business, a banking business, which you knew because you'd grown up through it, to doing a completely different side of the business where you knew nothing about the business. Did I got that part of the story right? So now with stockbrokers. Exactly. I've still okay. never sold a stock or a bond in my life. <laughs> and I can imagine they must have been fairly skeptical about having you as their manager initially. Was that true? Angry. 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 He doesn't understand okay. the business. He doesn't understand us. He comes from the bank. That's a different side. He's going to want to change us, make us different. He's going to want us to, uh, you know, everybody had a different fantasy, including the people that were working for me directly. And so I got nothing but uh, not just a unlimited amount of support, but uh, resistance for the very reasons that you described. It's human nature. And sure. they didn't know me. I wasn't a known quantity. And so... I had to make a choice. Am I going to fight them or am I going to win them over? And you can guess what I chose. Yeah, right. So you decide that you're going to get on a plane and travel around the country and meet the top 20 brokers face to face. Now, that must have taken a good bit of courage to say, well, okay, go. so tell me what it is you want from me after all. Well, I, what I discovered was that, I mean, it, it was incredible to me, but the belief system was these top 25 people don't want to be messed with. They want to be left alone yeah. um, so that they can just run their business. They don't want any interference. They want to maximize their productivity because they're paid on commissions. And so when I went out, I said, this is the premise that I've been presented with. And if I'm taking up too much of your time already, tell me. And instead, what I got were these deeply human responses, was that nobody's ever asked me these questions before. No one even knows who I am. Even my own boss doesn't really know that much. It's all superficial. And I want to know more than I know. I want to I learn. There's so many other products and services. There's so many ways of selling and building relationships that I'm not being exposed to. It was almost as if 
and and I you know I, I'm sort of cautious in saying this, but that there was tears, there was like this emotion of I've been neglected, nobody's given me the love, and you're the first person who's coming out to do this. And if I'm flying from California to New York or Texas or Oregon or Washington, I've made quite a statement. Uh, but from that point on, I did everything that I promised that I would do. I I promised to give them growth. I promised to be advocates for their business. I promised to care about them personally and to know what was going on in their lives. Even though they didn't report to me directly, I was still running that business. And so, lo and behold, you know, those were the people, by the way, who voted me the leader of the year. It was, so wow. it wasn't external. It was those people said, you know, of, of the leaders in this organization, who would you recommend be this person? And that's how I got that award. So that was really great confirmation at the end that even fully commissioned stockbrokers are deep down fundamentally human beings. Yeah, I well, I couldn't agree with that one more. Obviously, it reminds me of a story. Uh, this was years ago. I was working with an investment bank, and we were looking at the top leaders in the investment bank and trying to, you know, do some work around leadership development and their human side and all those sorts of things. And they kept telling these these investment bankers kept telling me, well, the only reason people work here is because of the money. And if you pay them, they'll say, you know, that's it. That's all they want. That's all they care about. Kind of like your stockbrokers. And I remember turning to every one of them one-to-one and say, look, you could leave this institution right now and walk to another institution and up your salary by more than 25%. It was a big market at the time. They could have easily done that. But you're not walking out the door. So how come you tell me you're motivated by money? And to a person, they said, oh, no, 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 not us. We're motivated about creating something bigger, being part of something that's interesting. And many times down to an individual leader who actually cared about them. That's the part of the story they didn't tell me, but there we are. Okay, so Mark, you use leave financial services. You go out to devote yourself to answering this question. What happens inside of people that makes them fully commit to doing extraordinary work? Does it turn out that your atypical style is actually common? No. Does it work it elsewhere? No, it, it, it's it's not common because it's, it, it flies in the face of what we've always believed, Wanda. We've always believed that you sort of keep a distance between you and the people that are working for you, that if you get too close and personal to them, they're going to get soft around the middle and they're not going to produce or they're going to take advantage of you or it takes up too much of your time to make that kind of an investment people. Uh, so, And then, I, of course, I put this label on it called leading, leading from the heart, and we hear the word heart and we immediately dismiss whoever says it as being someone who – fundamentally doesn't understand business, right? So that, that it, it's sort of like this bow tie that makes it even worse for people. So I was an outlier and I continue to be an outlier, although there are, there are certainly tremendous examples of organizations and leaders who have either figured this out on their own or are, are, are you know, quick adapters and are leveraging this to great success. Okay, so tell me about a couple of those people and what they're doing and how they're doing it. Well, I mean, I think, you know, if I had to pick an organization that was almost fully actualized, even though I know they, you know, there no organization ever going to be perfect, uh, but it would, it would probably, this, this organization, SAS, which is a software analytics firm in um, Cary, North Carolina, been around for 40 years. Uh, I've been there, met with the CEO, spent several hours with him, and still don't really understand what triggered something inside of him to build a company from the ground up that fundamentally cared about people. Uh, but this is an organization that's massively innovative. They've had 40, 40 now one year in a row record revenue, even in the, even in the recession. Uh, the CEO got wind during the recession when all of his competitors were laying off thousands of people. They, they took a week off at Christmas every year. That's their standard. And they came back and started noticing that as soon as he walked by people's offices, they were, you know, there was shame going on. He was like, I'm, I'm picking up something, but I don't know what it is. And so he asked his management team what's happening. And he said, well, they're all writing up their resumes and getting on LinkedIn because they think layoffs are coming. So he got in front of them and he said, Here's the deal. I manage this business long term. I'm not letting anybody go. But we have a lot less uh, business than we would normally, and every CFO in the company, country is saying, don't buy anything. So we're in for a rough hold. So I need you to stop spending money as much as you can 
and go back to work knowing that you have a job. And the impact of that was so unbelievable. The people were, it wasn't just that they felt appreciative. They felt so extraordinarily grateful that you're working for somebody who says, I see the big picture here, and you're not expendable. And safety, you know, ironically, sounds another soft idea, but people really need that more than almost anything other than food and water and shelter to thrive. And so by doing that, um, I went back and, and met him four years afterwards, and he said, we got more products coming on board now because every other company that we were dealing with or competing with had to rebuild their organizations. They lost all their talent. There wasn't any innovation during this. So you look at that and you say, well, you know, how could you do that? Well, he made the decision that keeping those people was long-term was a better decision than lopping off 10,000 people just to meet a quarterly goal or, or to, you know, to make sure that his profitability was you know, higher than it was the year before or even just to protect his profitability. And interestingly, they ended up the year with record revenue even though they were facing all those headwinds. And it's all a matter of whether or not you care about your people. This is a brilliant example of this. Um, and if you want to, I'll, I'll tell you another example of, at WD40 sure. if you're interested. Sure, I'd love to hear it. So um, that in, in this case, it's just saying I care about you over the long haul. So you're here. I'm not letting you go. We've got a sense of stability, and let's get back to work. Correct. Okay. i got to come back to this meaning of safety, but tell us about WD40. So uh, Gary Ridge is the CEO. He's been the uh, – so this is a very unsexy product, right? When you think about what their product is, it's a lubricant, and it works, you know, mechanics. I, I picked up my car the other day, and the guy was working on my car. He's spraying WD-40 on it, and I thought, you know, this is, this is so emblematic of what this product is. And yet he's got extraordinary engagement because what he's figured out are two things. So just to go back to your question a second ago, the issue of safety, he calls his employees his tribe. And there's tremendous research that's going on right now that's come out recently that is showing that this idea of family, this idea of being connected to one another and collaboration and being part of something big is a big driver of people's motivation, right? So he calls his employees their, uh, his tribe. He literally has a teepee in the, in the office when you walk into the corporate headquarters in San Diego. But then you look at it and you go, well, it's not Facebook, it's not Google, they're not not Tesla. They're not really changing the world. They got a 65-year-old product. How do you get people that are motivated and excited? One is growth. He's completely focused on growing people and giving them opportunities and promoting people from within the organization. But the other that I thought was just incredibly clever is that he has two focuses of purpose. One is to give the customer magical experiences. So if you're working on something and can't get a bolt undone and then you spray this stuff on and it opens it up and allows you to fix what you're fixing, that's effectively a magical experience. And they've got a million uses for this product, so it's not just unwinding a bolt that's going to do it. Um, and so they've got customer loyalty. They know they're building a product that is enhancing people's lives, making lives better, making people happier. But then internally, they have this motivation that, Every interaction that we have with one another is going to enhance one another's life. This is a very, very different idea, and meaning that if you're spending all day long with people, you're building long-term relationships. Now, I haven't been with my company now, my old company, for seven, eight years now, but I still have deep connections with these people because... That was part of who I was. I, I really thrived on having those relationships. Well, his idea is we want this on a day-to-day -day basis. We want people coming in, enjoying working with people, knowing that they're collaborating, knowing they're part of this tribe. That's a really powerful thing for people. And so he's got extraordinary, he has very low turnover. His profitability, by the way, is, is, is repeatedly terrific. Parnassus Investment, their Endeavor Fund, which invests in the companies that truly commit to caring about people, have picked his investment, and the stock has done phenomenally well. It's, it's just a win all, every possible way, Wanda. I can't imagine. It's, it's hard to imagine what that's like to be in a company where it says the two purposes, one is to give our customers magical experience. I can imagine that a lot of companies say that. Some actually do deliver it. 
But the second one is that every interaction with each other is going to enhance each other's lives. So practically, what does that look like inside the company other than we just have connections with each other and care for each other? How do they do that? I remember working for a guy. He was in charge. It was a bank, my first bank that I was working for, and he was the marketing director, and he had everything. He had PR and mark, you know, research and advertising and you know he had a huge huge world right. But everything that he was doing was influencing the retail branch system, the banks that you go into to get a mortgage or a checking account, etc. Right. So in this company, there was like 250 of them up and down the state of California, and so his principal reason for being was to make those branches successful. And we're in a meeting one day, and he goes, I'm getting really sick and tired of these branch pukes complaining about our work all the time. And I just stunned me, because what he was saying was, is this we, they kind of an attitude, right? It's like, they're not part of us. They don't get us. And we're, you know, they're going to take what we give them, all of that kind of an attitude. And so I guess the direct answer is, is that when you think about this interaction, my interaction with you right now is enhancing my life. I'm hoping that it has some benefit in yours, that this is enjoyable, sure. that you're getting something from it, right? And, and I think that looks at it and you say, well, if, if that's our motivation, then we're going to be much more collaborative and cooperative and supportive. We're going to make an assumption that if something goes wrong, that Wanda didn't mean it intentionally, that, you know, Wanda's a good person who wants to do good work here. It changes everybody's, the whole, the whole foundation in terms of how people behave just by that culture. And by the way, he's authentic, you know, as just as Dr. Jim Goodnight is at SAS. Um, he and Laszlo Bach, who you know ran talent at, at at Google, these are authentic people. So you can't fake this, and you have to. It's like entropy. You have to recognize that it can fall apart at any point if you're not managing it. So it, it just has to become you. It has that culture has to be, you know, breathed and lived every single day. Okay. All right. So we create a culture where we really genuinely convey to each other that I care about the quality of your life. I care about who you are and I care about what we're trying to achieve together. We get rid of the us versus them and we get rid of the accusation or what I like to call the judgment culture. Okay. So change that. And we're going to create a sense of safety. So it's not going to be that I'm pitted against you as an employee that you're going to keep a job and I might lose it. I've got a sense that I'm going to be here for a while. Is that what it takes? Is there more? I mean, you just did a, I'm sort of like standing outside of my going, wow, that was like very, very uh, expert summary of all of this. I, I think, you know, one component of this, so kudos to you. Um, that was wonderful. I, I think it's the, the one thing that probably people are wondering is, is what, well, you know, does this get business done? Is this, you know, are people perform when you do this kind of stuff? And I, I think when, when, if you were to ask people who used to work for me to use one word to, you know, an adjective to define me, you would kind of jump at, well, he's probably the heart guy. You know, that's, that's everything about him. That's his brand. He's the heart guy. But if you ask people, really, who worked for me over a long period of time, the word that they were probably more consistently used is demanding. Um, high expectations. High and higher expectations for my people than anyone who ever managed them in their life. And I always believed that it wasn't just because it was going to get us to the promised land in a greater, grander way. It was because people have far greater potential than anyone's ever asked them to, to achieve. And I think this is another thing that I see in... Um, for example, in other companies that are, that are leading and thinking this way, but particularly since we're talking about WD-40, it's, um, they, they have a, you know, sort of this mentality of, you know, it's not all heart, as I'm, I'm advocating, it's not all heart, it's head and heart. It's just in business today, it's all head. Everything we do is with our minds. And so, for example, if you go back to the SaaS example, you know, all of his peers, all of his companies were just saying, hey, the easiest way to get profitability or to, you know, to, to, to at least have some profit here is to lop off, you know, 5,000 people because we can pay all their severance and in three or four months we're back to, you know, we don't have that drag and that's going to get us in a great position. And what Jim Goodnight understood at SAS and what I think, you know, the enlightened point of view is, is that it's like a tourniquet. 
it might save the life in the moment, but then you have all of your other employees saying, hey, when this company gets into a situation where their back's against the wall, the first thing they do is turn on their employees. You've destroyed trust. You've destroyed, um, you know, any sense of engagement. People are like, I'm going into protection mode here, and if I can find another job, I'm going to take it, but I'm certainly not going to give everything to this company. And it's all this reciprocity in a very negative way. And this is what people don't think about, and that's where the heart comes in. Because if you think about, do I really need to let these people go? Could our company be better off if we didn't make this business decision right now? Do I really need all of my other employees? I'm, 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 I'm coaching somebody at a tech firm, major well-known tech firm right now, that just announced in the last week or so that they were laying off people. And in the conversation that I had with the, the, the executive that I'm working with, you know, I said, well, tell me how your team is. Well, they're all terrified, and they have no reason to be because the business decision was we needed to hit this number and we're not doing any more, but we're not rational beings. We're emotional beings. We're emotional beings. And so the fear is in the water right now. And so the antidote for him is to spend a lot of time with his people, make sure that they know that this isn't going to happen and that they had to make these decisions to get to where they needed to get to, which, by the way, is true. Um, but it's, it's having this balance of mind and heart and letting the heart influence you and not thinking that it's a soft thing because it's not. I love that. It's the balance of the mind and the heart. There are some hard decisions that have to get made but not to lose, to not make it all head. It's heart as well in there. I get that one. Um, too many tracks to follow up here that I can't quite get all my thoughts together here. <laughs> Doing great. This go back. This back to this notion about high expectations. I often find that when people talk about the leader that they work for in their career, that they most admire. That person often had really high expectations, but the expectations weren't so far out on the limb that you never made it. You actually kind of worked harder than you thought you were possible, and you're proud of that. There's a sense of excitement about having met those expectations. Yes. Is that what you see as well? Yes, yes, yes. And by the way, by setting high expectations, you know, if you've got a large team, some people are going to get there immediately. You know, it's like a running race, for example. Yeah. You know, somebody pulls out in front and you're like, wow, that, that person's way out of front and they're going to win this race. But you're still responsible for everybody else running the race. So, you know, the first piece of advice I would give is, is to encourage and, and acknowledge progress because everybody's at a different pace. So, you know, we, we just, uh, I've, I've worked with so many managers who just focus their attention on the stars and don't realize the potential in everybody else. And so if you're acknowledging that you're going to get there too, and I'm going to help you get there, people are like, wow, I, I can't believe that I could, you know, that I could do this. So I'll give you a simple example of one of the things that I did years ago. We had a, a P&L, profit and loss statement, that the, the bank branches were all responsible for. Just using very simple numbers, the goal for each of the branches was to make net income of $10,000. It wasn't real. It was all modified. But they got, they got income for everything that they sold, and they were accountable for, their, for the number of people they had. So they were responsible for managing their own expenses, if you will. And whatever net income was left over was a division of you know their 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 net profit over uh, over their expenses. So ten thousand dollars was the number. That's what the company wanted. So I took my managers on a retreat and I said, okay, I don't want to shoot for ten thousand if everybody else is shooting for ten thousand. So what can we pick? And then of course I got ten thousand and one dollar. 10,002, and I go, no, we have to stretch a little bit higher. And so I got people up to like 12,000, something like that. And I go, okay, I'll forget that. Our number is 14,000. And they were looking at me like I was absolutely insane. Like, how could you go 40% higher than what everybody else is doing? I said, because you're getting all this support. You, got a, you have a boss who loves you, who cares about you, supports you, teaches you, coaches you. Um, we work collaboratively as, as a team. We have a lot of experience here. We're better. So we should set a higher goal. So they were like completely crazed and thinking you know, I was a nut job. And then I said, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the P&L back. And I want you to, it was an Excel spreadsheet. And I said, just plug in some numbers and figure out what your plan would be. If you had to get to 14,000, 
what would you do? So they spent the weekend on it, and they came back, and universally they were saying, well, God, you know, all we need to do is like a couple more loans a month or one more investment or a few more checking accounts. It was their, their vision of what they were able to achieve had completely expanded. And so in the very first month, the net income average in the company was 8700 Our region of uh, 35 branches at the time did 21200 We were number one in the company, and we're number one in the company for 36 consecutive months. There wasn't anybody to be close to us. And it all started with just let's aim higher. And I, and I did that on everything. Let's, let's aim higher on how we communicate. Let's aim higher on how we interrelate with each other. Let's aim higher in, in every aspect. Let's just be that team. And I did that with everybody. And your insight that, that people, when they go home and they think about what they've done, it, it, it goes to their heart. I mean, I hate to say it, but that's where we feel it. And it's profound. It just it brings out, like, pure happiness in people to know that they've accomplished something typically when they didn't think they had it in them beforehand. Okay. Mark, you've just given me a very simple insight that explains something. So you remember years ago, there were these things that called BHAGs, Big, Hairy, Audacious Goal. And the notion around leading was that you were supposed to set these audacious goals for people, and that would push them beyond anything that they'd ever imagined they would do. And most of those were an absolute disaster because there was no heart in it. And you just said it. You set these high expectations, and you said you've got all the support, we're collaborative, we work together, we got a stronger team, we should be able to do more. And it's the heart side of that that's going to make that goal, and mean it now, not just faking it, make that goal really possible. And then the other thing I love about your story of getting them to exceed their own expectations of what they could do is you didn't say, here it is, make it happen regardless. You said, well, here's the spreadsheet. You go look at it and see what you think it would take to make this happen. So suddenly they're bought into this in a very tangible way. They're seeing the possibilities. And I think that's what we don't do. I think we hand it to people and we don't put any heart in it. I'm with you. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of crazy, right? But it's just like, it's so easy for a leader to go, just give me more, run faster, you know, get to the mountains, you know, quicker than anybody else. And it's like, well, no, there's a whole, there's, there's a whole system that needs to back that up. So you're absolutely right. All right. Fabulous. We're going to take a break at this point. With me today is Mark Crowley. Mark, as you can tell, is a bit of a path cutter in workplace engagement and workplace culture. Forbes magazine calls his ideas visionary and the blueprint for the future of the workplace leadership. I think you can see why. His book is a research book based on his experience. What happens for people when they decide to commit themselves fully to doing extraordinary work? And the book is called Lead from the Heart. We'll be right back. When we come back, I want to talk about engagement and what uh, what's going wrong here and what else we do. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. 
To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Mark Crowley. Mark is a bit of a visionary for what leadership should look like if we want true engagement in strong collaborative cultures. The book that is um, has consistently been in the Amazon 100 bestseller list on workplace culture is called Lead from the Heart. And the general notion here is that you want to care about the people that you work for the way you would have liked to have been cared for yourself I guess as a child or even as an adult for that matter, you want to show them the attention, that you care about them, that you appreciate them, they give them opportunity for growth. You want to support them in fact, the emotional side, the heart side. Now, that isn't enough. We've got to create a bit of safety so that people don't feel threatened and they're not guarding my path or worried about my person sitting next to me getting the job I really want. So they have a little bit of safety. But it's not all heart. We have to have some head. We want to have some ambitious goals. We want to reach for something that's bigger. We want a boss that is caring and demanding. And we want to know that we're winning, in effect. We want to be having good results and something to show for it. So I want to shift the tables now from this notion and talk about Mark's highly read LinkedIn article about engagement. So I started the show with saying every company I know cares about engagement, trying to move the needle, and they're just not getting very far. So, Mark, what's wrong with our current approach? <laughs> well, I, I think one of the big biggest problems is that most leaders don't think they have the problem. They think it's somebody else's problem. And so uh, part of that is that the metrics that they're using either skew the results or sort of suggest that the company isn't doing so bad and people are so focused on production, production, production that they go, hey, you know what, it's good enough. We, we, we really don't need to do anything. And I, I call this moving peas on the plate um, because it, 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 they, they create the impression within the organization that we're taking this seriously and the employees look at this and they look at the survey as complete bullshit because they think nothing is ever being done with this. No ever, there's no change whatsoever. I'm still working for the jerk boss that I have today or the person that, you know, doesn't really do anything to drive my engagement. So why should I take it seriously? So in some respects, companies are doing themselves more harm than good by just, you know, managing the, the reporting process, having an annual or biannual report is, is not enough to do it. But it's really interesting because I just gave this um, speech to uh, 150 CEOs, big time. Um, these are companies that soils engineers and architectural firms and real solid, no pun intended, companies. And I, so I, I said, look, I want to talk about engagement, but before I do, I need to pin down that the numbers are real and the numbers apply to you. So when you hear that there's just 30%, 31% of American workers that are willing to do anything and everything they can to help their boss and organization succeed, that means the 70% are in your company. It's not just in somebody else's. And I beat this horse really, really badly. I mean, really, really strongly, rather. And then, like, two hours later, they asked me to sit and, and hear some of the other presentations. And one of the executives, one of the company owners, um, did his own presentation. And it was this live tracking. He asked them questions, and they all used their cell phones to respond. And one of them was, in your organization, how would you evaluate engagement? And, you know, so basically on a good, a good to bad scale. And 80% of these, these CEOs put themselves in the exceptional category. <laughs> and even the sound guy, the, literally the guy that was working the, the technical desk at the back of the room in the hotel looks at me and goes, do you believe these guys? Like, <laughs> after how hard you tried to tell them? So I think it's buying into the fact that we're probably not as good as we think we are. I think that's a big part of this. So I guess, you know, just to pin it down, organizations have to commit to this. They have to make it real because the surveys, if, if nothing gets done, then people become cynical about them and they don't even respond to them anymore. So you get low numbers and anything that you're getting isn't really representative of the truth. And you have to communicate the actions that you're taking. We heard this. 
we heard these black eyes, you know, so we took these punches and we're going to fix these and we're going to keep you communicated so that you know that we're taking these things seriously. So it can't be a one and done uh, kind of a thing, which I think is what many organizations do. They just sort of check the box and move on. Um, and then I think, you know, something a little bit deeper is that they have to manage engagement at the manager level. They have to monitor employee turnover at the manager level, and they have to manage employee engagement at the manager level. And the ones who are the non-collaborators, they need to be weeded out. We cannot allow anyone to have a bad manager. We can't have anyone who's working for someone who is fundamentally focused on their needs, their goals, their ambitions, their recognition, their pay, and aren't doing anything as an advocate for the people that they're working for, which is probably the single greatest reason that people are, un- are disengaged or not engaged is because they work for somebody that they feel that they're actually competing against rather than somebody who's you know, out to help them. So I, I, th- I think those are, are probably the big ones. And then what most people probably don't realize is another huge um, motivator of engagement is growth. And so we think, well, you know, that guy's been in that job for five years. He doesn't need to grow baloney. Even if that person doesn't ever want to be CEO or move beyond that chair, um, giving every single person in the company opportunities to learn new things is one of the greatest drivers of engagement. And interestingly, not just to teach them what they already know. So if you're a chef, and just teaching them cooking skills isn't going to move the needle. Teach them something about managing their finances or giving them an opportunity to learn how a mortgage works or how to be a better steward of your 401k or how to speak in public, whatever. Things that people want to learn that will broaden the human being and we get so locked in, we're only going to invest, we're only going to teach them, but you can bring in people to train them and teach them things, give them opportunities to work with somebody that they want to work with, work on a project that they wouldn't get an opportunity to. This is one of the hugest drivers of engagement. Do that. Get a caring manager in there for everyone and give people opportunities to grow and demonstrate that you have integrity in managing engagement in a way that people feel that you really want to improve it and the numbers will move radically. So a manager who cares for everyone, an opportunity to grow and learn, something new that I don't already know and not necessarily always about the business, and a chance to work with people I like. Did I get that straight? Um, not necessarily people that they like, but that uh, that, that at the very senior level of the organization that that the company Integrity. needs to keep its tab on their managers and whether I mean we know for a fact you know this Wanda that people don't leave companies. This is a cliche, but it's absolute truth. But the reason any of us quit a job and Gallup has shown that at least one in two of us have quit a job at one point in our career because we work for a boss that we it, we find intolerable. And if we find them intolerable, other people are finding them intolerable. And those are the kinds of people that companies cannot afford to keep any longer. And if you don't have the metrics, you know, the other thing is the discipline. Because I work with uh, a guy once that they, his managers called them the plague. Um, that very complimentary term to describe, you know, there's nothing worse than working for this guy. And yet he, because he bashed people and threatened people and managed with fear and intimidation, got numbers consistently, people just kept repeatedly looking away. And the management of the company wasn't willing to say, you might be getting the numbers, but you're not getting them in a way that is aligned to our values and aligned to a way that's going to sustain you know, people's engagement and happiness here. So you can't stay here unless you change. They never were willing to do that. And there are many, many organizations that haven't got that guts to do that. And uh, believe me, the upside is huge because when people feel that they're working in a place that has managers like that, they will scale mountains. They'll do things that you can't imagine. We limit ourselves. We think, oh, no, we have to keep people under our thumb. We have to keep people oppressed in order to perform. And I've learned it's just the opposite. I just learned another bank, a major bank, somebody that uh, an organization I'm familiar with, uh, they were saying that they, they don't think that their employees can sell effectively. 
So they brought in a technology that is massive micromanagement. I mean, making commitments on Mondays, check-ins on Wednesdays, how are you doing, how far along are you? Then they have to report on Friday, and they get shamed if they don't hit their numbers on Friday, and then it starts all over. And in, initially, the results will go up great because people will respond to this out of fear. But give it 96, you know, 90 days, 120 days, and it's going to be one of the most destructive things you can do because it, it starts to beat down people and people get weary and they're stressed and they can't sustain it any longer, and that's when you have turnover. So this is a big driver of engagement is when you're not doing things that really support people. So that's true north. If you support people and make people feel good, they're going to do great work. And if you, you know, if you abuse people, they're going to do great work too. It's just not sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. Temporarily short-term work. Okay. Interesting. So the three you said before, and I misquoted you, is that as a manager who cares, that gives you attention, that they care, that they they support, they act like they have your interest at heart and you don't feel like you're competing with the manager for the manager's next opportunity or growth. You said the second thing is to give people an opportunity to grow and learn something they don't already know. And the third one you said was integrity, that really doing what you say you were doing. If you're saying the values are important and yet you tolerate managers who manage by fear, then don't be surprised if people get a little bit jaded. And then you also said this thing of, which I fundamentally believe is true, people aren't motivated or excited or really given themselves when they're critiqued or beaten down or not trusted. They give of themselves when they feel positive about what they're doing and they feel valued. And yet yeah, I we just spend... was doing tweets for tomorrow. I, you know, I programmed some tweets to send out at different times. And one of them was um, if, if you uh, critique somebody and harm their self-esteem, not only will they resist it, but they will become resentful. And so, yeah, you know, as Anne Lamott, the, the writer, said that, uh, you know, you can point with the sword of truth. You don't have to, <laughs> you don't have to use the sword of truth. And I think that's a very powerful, you know, image of suggesting to somebody that, hey, here's something that you need to improve on without, you know, breaking their spirit. Right. Right. So there's the constructive feedback as opposed to the let me tell you everything you did wrong in the last 15 minutes. Correct. So let's shift the conversation and talk for a few minutes about trust. I know that this is a big thing that you care about. Um, Trust Across America has listed you as a thought leader for the last three years. Give us some advice on how it is we create a stronger sense of trust in organizations. Okay, um, so that's, you know, you're asking these really wonderful questions. I, I think, you know, starting at the individual level, Wanda, it really comes down to, and it sounds completely, you know, r- ridiculous, but it's absolutely true. This is where trust gets broken so consistently, is never make a promise that you know you might not be able to keep, um, no matter how small. So if I say to you, Wanda, I promise to call you tomorrow, and I don't, um, I might think, well, that's no big deal. I'll call tomorrow or the next day. I'll get to that. I'll get to Wanda. Um, but Wanda is thinking he broke a promise. He broke a commitment. He promised that he was going to call. And deep down inside of us, we're making a calculation about Mark now that isn't very favorable. That means Mark can't be counted on. Mark will say things that he doesn't mean. And it's um, so if, if you think in, in your heart of hearts that there's a possibility you can't commit it, then don't. That, I mean, that, that seems so basic, but it's so essential. Um, but there's other components of trust that I think most people don't think about, which is um, vulnerability, which is being able to um, uh, Daniel Coyle's got a new book out, and, uh, in, and he talks about vulnerability. And uh, a, a, a pastor, a church pastor, wrote a comment on, the, on his book, for, you know, on Amazon Review, and said, you know, I get up in front of my congregation and I make myself look like I'm, I'm Jesus, you know, like I'm, like I'm the perfect person and that you, you can't find anything wrong with me. And he realized how deeply he was alienating people because they wouldn't be vulnerable with him. They didn't want to come to Mr. Perfect and say, hey, I'm having problems with my marriage or I'm really worried about my job or I'm drinking too much or whatever it is that people share with a pastor. 
And so he said, I, what I realized is that you have to demonstrate vulnerability. You have to demonstrate that, hey, I made a mistake there, or I don't know the answer to this, or I'm struggling to figure out the best way to go. And, you know, we in leadership often have egos, and we, we, we don't want to reveal that we have a weakness. And it's just the ironic opposite, that if you demonstrate to people that you have weakness, they will respect you more. <laughs> it's just, just works like that. Humility is a power. And then you sort of hinted at this earlier, but assuming innocence about people and not judging them on every brushstroke, allowing people to make some mistakes and not just, you know, hammering them down whenever something goes wrong. We've all worked for people like that. I had a boss that, you know, no matter, you, you'd do 10 things on an extraordinary level and then you'd make a mistake and he wouldn't just let you have it. He'd let you have it and he'd let you have it publicly. And it was abuse. And uh, I, I have found that the leaders who, you know, I've made plenty of mistakes in the early part of my career. Some I look back on and go, how did I survive? How did they not like kill me for doing this? And, um, but the, the, the leader sort of saw the big picture. They saw how hard I was working, how much ambition I had, what my potential was. And they said, you know, I'm not going to squash that for this mistake here. And they made sure that I knew what it was that I was doing wrong. But generally it was assuming innocence and saying, hey, let's do better next time. We don't think we can operate with, you know, such light, light feedback. And some people, you have to break it over their head to get them. But most people don't really need that. In order, they, most people are hard enough on themselves. Um, speaking directly is another one. Being, giving people candor, not with the intent to abuse, but to be able to say, I need this done on Thursday because I promised my boss. Um, by the way, your performance is really not where it needs to be right now. People need to know, and a lot of managers want to be liked, and they're afraid of giving that feedback but, and, and think that it's going to harm their relationship. But when people know where they stand, they're much more grateful, even if they think they're not standing well. Um, so being, pe- being willing to give people that direct feedback. And then the last two, I think, is um, something that I really learned from Google um, giving people voice. And this isn't to say running is a democracy, but it's saying, hey, we're, we're thinking about doing this or we've done this now for the past month. Tell us how this is working and being open to getting constructive feedback and, and adapting or embracing what they want you to do um, and telling them, hey, we heard your feedback. This is what we're going to do. Sometimes you have to tell them we heard it. We're still not going to do it. But giving people voice gives people deep, deep, deep engagement, but it also builds trust because then they go, well, at least they know what we're thinking. And then finally, I'd say be an optimist. If you don't believe there's a great future ahead, we're not going to believe it. So optimistic people are really the kind of people we all want to work for, and that's a big trust builder. Fabulous. Mark, I know we could go on with me today, Mark Crowley. The book, if you're interested, is called Lead from the Heart. I think the thing that I find most fascinating about all of this is how simple it is to drive engagement. And it starts with both head, we want to achieve something, and heart. I want to know that my manager cares. I want to know that I have an opportunity to grow, and I want my company to have integrity about what they say, what they do. Mark, some fabulous insights on trust as well. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.